I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, we will continue our study through this book of the Old Testament, a book that is inspired by God, inspired by His Spirit, and given to us for us to know Him, for us to hear about ultimately the gospel, that this is what the entire Bible is about. So if you're here visiting us today and are not a Christian, maybe dragged by a friend, yes, we truly believe that God has given us his word. Yes, we have truly sung to the God who sent his son, who came and lived a perfect life and then died a cruel death. But on the third day, he was risen from the dead and he's invited sinners to repent and believe in him and be saved. And we, the church, are those people who have been redeemed. And yes, we believe that this is true. It has changed us and transformed us. So we take the word of God seriously. Here's what God has said, revealed. His instructions to us that we would know his holiness, his love, his grace, the gospel. So we do at Providence Road what is known as expository preaching. You might, if you've been here a few times, you might be saying, man, these... These guys are just in 1 Samuel this whole time. Let's get on to something else. Well, we will eventually. But we want to soak in 1 Samuel. Know God's message, his words, his thoughts. Because it doesn't matter what the preacher says if he's not saying what God has already said. So that's our hope today as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 6. And as you have your Bible there in front of you, and again, if you don't have your own Bible, we would love to gift you one at the end of the service in our welcome area. We'll have some Bibles available. But if you have your own Bible, whether physical, electronic, or if you join us on the screen, let us read 1 Samuel chapter 6. It's a little lengthy, but worth the read. It is God's word for us. So verse 1 says, The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines, they called for the priests and the, di- and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us what we, shall, what we shall send it to its place. They said, if you send it away, the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the numbers of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take the calves home away from them and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it on the box and put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold, when you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, 
then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took the two cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up the, and shut up the calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped here, there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, and one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages, the great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of kiriath Jerim, saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And verse 1 of chapter 7, let me read that as well. And the men of kiriath Jerim, they came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, now as we have read your word and now we attempt by your spirit light of your truth to explain it. Lord, I pray that each one of us would not just understand it, but that we would take hold of it, respond rightly to it, according to your good pleasure. Brother, co Father, convict us of these truths. Bring some to the saving knowledge of Christ. Bring others, Lord, to repentance and communion with you. Bring Christians, Lord, to an awakening and a passion ignited in their hearts and what we do here day in and day out, week in and week out, Sunday after Sunday, how we live our lives with every desire to be the church, and we would never take this for granted. But with hands on the plow, with great excitement, because we have a great king, that we would live for Jesus all the days of our lives. Bless this time, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. When the apostle Paul, he went to Athens in Acts 17, he spoke with the philosophers of the day in that very well-known intellectual city, and 
he tells the philosophers there as he is about to make his arguments for Christianity, he tells them, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. One of the truths that we have been learning through our time in 1 Samuel is that what is true of people in our text, what is true of the people found in the scriptures, is true of the people found today. It's true of all of us. The condition of our heart is the same. The fallen condition of man is still unchanged in every way outside of the work of the gospel. And one of the truths that we find about man is that although he is dead in his sins, although he is a rebel against God, although he has a corrupt nature, he still has the propensity to be religious, to seek after that that is divine, that, that, that thing that man is able to put trust in or hope in. Man is religious. And has always been all these characters in this book, religious people, be Israelites or Philistines. And even in our day, people might say today, oh, no, no, we are beyond religion. Now we live in the enlightenment. Now we no longer are ignorant. Now we can imagine a world without a God and without religious activity. As John Lennon wrote, Many years ago, his song, Imagine, he says, imagine there's no heaven, it is easy if you try, no hell below us, above us, only sky. Wanted to be beyond what it is to worship God, but the reality is that the reason why he says imagine is because the reality is, is that every man is religious. He worships something. Man, indeed, is one who is seeking to worship and even in his sinfulness try to harness the power of those things which he feels is greater than them. And imagine you can look around our world and, and even in our day and in, in our moment, why is it that people in our culture, whether it's politically, whether it's economically, whether in, in, in every regard, everyone is just canceling one another. Every argument is, is a debate to the death. There is no winning. Truth is, has become so relative in every regard. Why is this? Well, it is, <laughs> the reason behind it is that in every way, whether it is science or philosophy or, or anthropology or culture, Man has perceived all these things in a very religious way, so there's extreme passion about all these things. And so to attack my philosophy, my worldview, is to attack my God, is to attack, attack my idol. And the reason is because man was created to hope in and find meaning ultimately in God. But the fall of man, sin enters into this world, has created man in such a way that he is passionately still trying to worship, but he's trying to worship something else other than the one true and living God. So man is deeply religious and nothing has changed since the time of the Bible. 
The God of the age may not look like the gods of the temple of Dagon, for example, as we've been studying here with carved statues representing them, but rest assured that in our day, contextualized, the same gods remain. Everyone is deeply religious, but have failed to worship and honor the one true living God. That's our problem. We're all religious, but we have failed to worship and honor the one true living God. In chapter five, the Philistines, they tried to politically, militarily, and religiously deal with the God of Israel. But we know that it did not go well for them. When they captured the Ark of the Lord militarily, they brought it where? To Dagon's temple, their God. And there they wanted to interact with the Ark of the Covenant, with the God of Israel in a religious way. They hoped that he could just be part of their many gods, that they would be able to worship him, manipulate God, harness the power of God that they had heard for so long about the God of Israel, that somehow this God would provide for them blessing and favor. We know from our last message in this book that they found out who they were dealing with. Well, they found out that God is not one of the many false, powerless gods that they had been accustomed to deal with, like Dagon, who falls to his face before the Ark of the Covenant twice, needs help to be stood up, and the second time he loses his head and his hands... Oh, no, no, now they are dealing with the one true living God. They have been dealing with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this God, the one true living God, has been destroying them and leaving them with questions. Verse 2 tells us of our text some of those questions that they had. It sifted down to this. What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what shall we send it to his place. You know what they're saying there? If we could interpret that, this is what they're saying. How can we escape God's holy wrath? A question viable for them and one that is for us today. How can one escape God's holy wrath? And we will see another important question. As the text progresses and at the end of the chapter, as now the ark is returned to Israel and the interactions that they have and how they express their, religi their uh, re uh, religious works, they have to also respond to the God, the one true living God, but because of their sin and because they responded in similar ways as the Philistines did, Look what they asked. After so many of them died, they asked, who is able to stand before the Lord? This holy God. How can we escape God's wrath? Who is able to stand before the Lord? This holy God. Two questions that needed to be answered in the days of 1 Samuel and in 2021 among us today. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you this main idea for you to write down. 
and it is this. This is my only point, one point. You might be saying, we're out of here soon. No. <laughs> it is this, write this down. God is holy, and any hope of escaping his wrath and receiving his salvation will happen on his terms and only by his grace. Will happen on his terms and apparently and and only by his grace. So let's look at this text. First notice how the writer wants us to understand the calamity the Philistines have been facing by the heavy hand of the Lord. Verse 1, the author, he gives us the detail of the ark of, of the Lord was among the Philistines for seven months. I think that's significant. Seven months, for seven months, they were experiencing the judgment of God. And we know how this went. It started at Ashdod with the humiliation of Dagon, like I had explained, how he fell face first before the Ark of the Covenant because the Lord doesn't share his glory with no one. You have no other God besides me. First commandment they broke right there. But what happened in the city of Ashdod is that the people broke out in tumors. And apparently there were some issues with some mice, some rats that were bringing some type of plague and infirmity. And, and, and this was the reality of the city of Ashdod. They were suffering greatly. So the princes, the leaders of the five cities of the Philistines got together and they decided to move the ark to another city, to Gath. And they thought that maybe we could manage this ark and we could sort of you know, reset and, and, and see how we could harness the power of this God and maintain it among our Philistine nation. But the same thing happened in that city. And sure enough, without another meeting of all the leaders of the Philistines, it was sent to another city and, and, and eventually people caught on. Why are you bringing this thing to our city? It's gonna kill us. Well, they had experience for seven months. They were afflicted. And they finally understood, by the time we get to chapter 6, they finally understood that the ark needed to be sent away. This thing can't remain among us. So the question becomes then, how? How do we get rid of the ark the right way? Because they're asking the question, how can we escape God's wrath? You see, because they're religious people. They know that they need to somehow make peace with this God because there's no assurance that although they might send the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel, they have understood the power of God and they might be wondering if even if the box isn't Israel, if God could still afflict them. So they understood that they needed to somehow escape God's wrath, appease God Relent, he needed to relent against them. And that was of great concern. We need to get the box out of here, but how do we do it? What's the protocol? Religion. Always about the things that you have to do in the right order, the things. This, we need to know. So what is it that they did? Well, they called their religious people. They summoned their priests and their 
diviners. And this has always been the case. It's what Pharaoh did in Egypt. It's, 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 it was always because man is religious. He calls his priests, their priests and their diviners, and, and they ask the question, what do we need to do? How can we do this right? So much fear was upon them because they needed to figure out how, well, what is the best way? What is the key that we need to do? What is it that we have to do in order to appease this God? And the, and the priests and the diviners who, who portray themselves as these spiritual leaders that think they know what's, what's the reality of this spiritual world and, and what it means to interact with, uh, with the deities, they come up with this plan. Now first notice how they tried to fix the situation by the means of their own wisdom, their own corrupt, fallen, sinful wisdom, and also by the means of their own efforts and their own works. They knew that somehow they had to survive this predicament, so here's what they devised. They said, listen, if you're going to send the ark away, don't send it back without a guilt offering. Don't send it back without a guilt offering. The leaders perhaps were like, okay, that sounds good. What's a guilt offering? What does it look like? How do we accomplish this? And they said, okay, you need to make five golden tumors and five golden mice. For us, this sounds absolutely crazy and bizarre. Like, what in the world? And, and, and so much... So much ran through my mind, like, how did they do this? Did they put up some announcement? We need to have five models, people to come in with nice tumors. We need some nice tumors that we could cast and sort of make a mold of because we're going to make these five golden tumors. How do you do this? It's like an elementary, you know, ceramic pot that some child makes, you know, just that's what it feels like. But I would be curious to know, right? So I asked myself the questions, why, why tumors out of gold and why mice? Well, per, well, perhaps I think, and many have different thoughts on this, but perhaps it was to show the God of Israel that they acknowledged his power and destruction that he has brought upon their nation. Oh, we get it, we get it, God. We get it, God of Israel. We understand, we know exactly what's happened. It was through these things, through tumors and this plague of mice, apparently, that you have destroyed us. And in making these as the guilt offering, what they were saying was, you win, we lose. But also the flip side of that is, you, God, who are all powerful, who have brought this among us, not only do we acknowledge how you've done it, we want you to be reminded of what you did and how you did it so that therefore we could ask you to remove these very things. This was their desire. That God would relent and no longer destroy them by the means of tumors and mice. And then the question became, why out of gold? It's obviously... It needed to be something valuable. It will be necessary that this would be something of great worth because, again, they are trying to give the God of Israel in this moment their best. 
So they're not going to make plastic tumors. They're not going to make them out of rubber. They're not going to drive down to some theme park and, and one of those wax figures things for 50 cents and boom, here you go, a wax tumor for you to give. No, they, they were all about the guilt offering as something of great worth. From their perspective, from their religious understanding, they tried to fix the situation by their own wisdom and by their own works. But you know what? We need to give them a little bit of credit because at least, at least they knew that they had offended God. At least they knew that they were guilty, hence the guilt offering. They knew they couldn't win against God. And if they tried, that they would probably experience, verse 6 tells us that that these priests and diviners had in mind that what happened to the Egyptians and Pharaoh might happen to them if they don't just get this ark out of here and let it go back to its rightful place. How Pharaoh in his stubbornness and the Egyptians suffered greatly because they would not let God, God's people go. And, and they're saying, may this not be said of you. God de- has dealt severely with the Egyptians. Would you want this to happen to you as well? This must go with the guilt offering, in this way, with the five golden tumors, the five mice, and this became the plan. God, please take this offering and leave us alone. They wanted to escape God's wrath. And listen, maybe that is you here today. Maybe you know enough about God, the God of the Bible, that you've come here today with similar questions. How can I escape God's wrath? How do I do it the right way? What's the protocol? What must I do? Maybe you will be tempted like the Philistines to fix your situation by your own wisdom and through your own works. I want you to know that that is you here today. I want you to know that that never works. That that's always led to failure and damnation. All those efforts to exercise your own wisdom and your own works and and your own abilities to save yourself and be spared from the wrath of God against your sin, all those efforts doesn't move you one inch nearer to God. It avails you nothing. Because the problem that the Philistines had is the same problem that every man has. We are sinners, and sinners are deserving of God's wrath because God is holy and just, and sin cannot stand in the presence of the Lord. So if you feel the guilt of sin and think that 
by some way you giving money to some charity is somehow appeasing God. God is seeing your good works and says, wow, he gave money to the Humane Society or to Habitat for Humanity. Look what he did. He sponsored a house so that a family could live. I tell you, that does nothing for your salvation. You might give some money to some missionary overseas or to give it to a church. I tell you, those things do nothing for your salvation. You might desire to serve your neighbor who he's saying, you know what, I'm going to mow his lawn. He's elderly. He can't mow his lawn. He can't afford. I'm going to do it. Lord, look at my works. That avails you nothing. Even if you're a professional, you have your own firm, your own business, and you pro bono, you want to just bless somebody or bless a community. I want you to know none of that will inch you anywhere nearer to God and his forgiveness. If you think that just simply participating in church, how so many, especially in our city, where Catholicism is so prevalent, that that I could just fill my sin tank, my guilt tank, and when I'm tired of carrying it, I go to church to then put in my mouth this bread that turns into the body of Jesus and this wine that turns into the blood and that somehow now I have received grace. I have a piece of Jesus where I could empty out the guilt tank where I don't, it's not so much a burden anymore and I could just go my own way and live however I want and when it's heavy again, I'll come back and I'll do the same ritual. Remember, everyone is religious. None of that will help you at all when it comes to removing the wrath of God against your sin. God's wrath is upon every single sinner and no human wisdom or human effort can remove it. This is why Paul says in Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, twist the truth, diminish the truth. Make too much of man and bring down God in some, in, in some way. Try to narrow the gap between the holiness of God and who we are and that somehow we can make ourselves worthy before God in our own wisdom and works. This is what the Philistines were trying to do. Oh, we can't deal with this God. He's beat us up. A bunch of us have died. We need to get rid of this thing, but we need to somehow make peace with him. We need to somehow relent his wrath against us. What do we do? What do we do? Okay, you build these little golden tumors, you put it in a box, and you send it on, and maybe God would accept that, receive that. Not to repent from our ways, our pagan ways, and our worship of false gods, and you know, tear down the temple of Dagon and be a follower of the one true living God. No, no, just, just, we just need you to relent against us and leave us alone so we can do our own thing. Oh, the Philistines were sinners and God's wrath, God's wrath was revealed against them. And it's so interesting to see the realities of it because God's wrath is upon sinners. It was upon the Philistines before they had taken the ark back to their city. It was definitely a picture of God's wrath among them as they experienced God's wrath with tumors and mice. But even as they attempt to return it 
and think that they're freed from the wrath of God. Oh, God's wrath is still upon all sinners. And if God hasn't stricken dead a sinner, it's because God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and merciful as the gospel is being proclaimed and preached. But one day that's going to end. One day God's wrath will be fully revealed. But look how crazy this is. We, we find in the text that despite all that the Philistines had experienced, they still entertained the idea of doubts, whether the plagues, whether the tumors were really caused by the God of Israel. In verse 7, they received further instructions from the priests and the diviners. And they said, prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it on the box at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. It's interesting that verse 9 says, do all these things in these certain ways because if these cows, if this cart makes it to its destination, we know that it was God who struck us. But if it doesn't, we'll know that all this that has happened to us is just coincidence. Really? Oh, because they're religious people, because every man is religious, they, they understood, they had an external etiquette of respect towards deities. But at the same time, they were simultaneously more than willing to dishonor. Remember, they're deeply religious. And the text tells us that they used a new cart. No one's asking for who has a beater in their garage that they haven't used in six months. Bring that one out because that's what we're going to use. No, no, no. The God of Israel is worthy of the best. Let's create him a new cart. That's always been the case. Jesus rode on a donkey that had never been written. Jesus was buried in a tomb that had never been used before. They don't even know what they're doing, but they're doing. So they wanted to provide a new cart to put on top of it the Ark of the Covenant and the box of the guilt offering. And then they said, we need two cows. Specifically, it says, two milk cows that have never been yoked. Interesting. The God who we are trying to appease is one who at the same time we are testing. This is like Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Who, which God is going to light up this altar to prove himself to be the one true living God? And what were the instructions from God to Elijah? Soak it with water. Soak it with water. Drench it with water. Bring, bring more buckets and more buckets so that when this thing ignites, everyone will know that it was the God of Israel who is the one true living God. And here were these Philistines trying to create a similar scenario. They're trying to create the, what is perceived to be impossible hoping that it is just coincidence. So here's what their priest and diviners said. Okay, here's what you gotta do. Build this new cart, nice and pretty. 
find yourself two milk cows. Why milk cows? Well, they would have calves with them. They would be one who would not want to leave because their instinct, their maternal instinct, would be to remain with their calves. Oh, a cow that's producing milk is only producing milk. I don't know if you know this. Some people think that they're always producing milk. You're only producing milk when you have a calf, when they gave birth for a season. But in that season, they are very attached to their calf. One, maternal instincts, but two, they need relief because the milk that they produce needs to be taken out at least twice a day, still true today. If not, there's infection and even death potential for that cow. So here's what they, here they did. They got two milk cows, and they locked up the calves. We keep the calves at home because these cows are not going to want to move. We'll see what they do. But on top of that, it's a cow who has never been yoked. The yoke that is put on an animal, a cow, a horse to pull, you know, either a carriage or even a, a, a plow would be put around them. And if, and if they have never worn that, talking to my dad who's from the, the you know, he's from El Campo de Cuba, he's from the countryside, and he did this as a child, he says, no, when you put the yoke on the cow, it's, it takes a while for them to know and learn what to do, how to walk in a straight line, how to plow in a straight line. So these have never worn a yoke. But even much more difficult is when you have to pair them up together, two of them yoked, that now they have to walk synchronized at the same pace. And what typically happens, one is dominant over the other, one leads and the other follows is what I is what I understand. So here's the scenario. We built this new cart, we put the box, the ark in it, the box with the tumors and the rats made out of gold. We bring two milk cows, lock up their calves, put the yokes on that they've never worn, stare at each other and say, where are we going? <laughs> what are we doing? And this was the test. Oh, externally, religiously, these Philistines were all about making this look beautiful. The new cart, the beautiful cows, the ark above. But they were setting up the impossible scenario in hopes perhaps that it would fail, that their loss and their destruction was not at the hands of the God of Israel, that this would have been just a coincidence. And I imagine those who put it together as the cows are now ready to move, as the cart is ready to move, one is saying to the other, they're not going to move. I hear the calves, they were actually lowing, mooing, probably aware of their calf that's far away. They're saying, these, calves, these cows are not going to move. Watch, watch, I'm telling you, they're not going to move. Sure enough, they start moving probably 50 yards, 100 yards, like, oh, they're actually moving. And they're actually walking pretty straight. They figured something out, and before you know it, it's like, oh no, they're like very far away. As a matter of fact, the text tells us that they walked in a straight line. They never looked to their right. They never looked to their left, which is the total opposite of what would have normally happened in that circumstance. 
So the cows went up, verse 12. It tells us after the men did exactly what they were told. Verse 12, and the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along the highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And this provoked that the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. And it's thought that that was about seven miles away. So maybe the test, oh, this is not a coincidence. This was not supposed to happen. These cows took off in a straight line and they, and they are past the horizon. We don't know where they're going. They decide, well, let's follow this thing because what we need now that we know that this is the God who wrecked us, let's make sure until I see it with my own eyes that it has been returned to Israel. When we see it, then we'll come back and live our lives. And that's what they did. They followed, they followed the cows as they walked. And in verse 13, it describes for us this, this moment where now the cows have arrived. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. It's like GPS was perfect. You have arrived. The cows just stopped because the Lord stopped them. And those who were reaping the wheat, those who were working the fields, look up, and the text says that they rejoiced to see it. Why would they rejoice to see it? What happened seven months before? As Eli's daughter-in-law, upon dying and giving birth to a child, she named him Ichabod, which was what? The Lord, his glory has departed. And here those who are working the fields can see now, the ark arrive in this cart with these cows, and they see the ark, they recognize the ark, and it is received with great joy. And it turns out that the God, our God, who makes no mistakes, Beth Shemesh is a Levitical city, and in that city is the clan of Kohath. This is the clan that was assigned to take care of the ark of the covenant for generations. And so it, it, it will be no surprise that it arrived at this particular town that the Lord brought these cows in a straight line, never looked back, stopped right here where now the Levitical order can now reset, repent of their sin, and be back in communion with the Lord. So something interesting happens here that we cannot miss. Because it's not surprising that quickly they prepared a sacrifice. People are religious. And Israel is religious. They merely get into ritual. The text tells us that there was a great stone there. They take the Ark of the Covenant and they put it on top of the stone along with the boxes, with the tumors and the golden rats. 
They took the cart on which it came and they chopped it up. They took all the wood because they needed it for the burnt offering. And they took the cows, the two milk cows, and slaughtered them for the sacrifice. And it was only now when this had happened that the Philistines finally decided, all right, guys, let's go home. And how horrendous those words are. Think about it. They, they should have, if they're now convinced that the God of Israel is the God who had destroyed them, they should have repented and joined in the worship and sacrifice. They should have become followers of Yahweh. They saw the miracle among them. There's no reason why this cart and these cows should have made it here. They should have reacted like Ruth reacted to Naomi. As she tells her in Ruth 1, 16 and 17, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you for where I go, for, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anyone but death parts me from you. They should have responded in a similar way. This is the one true living God. Let's turn from our wicked, sinful, pagan ways. Let's abandon our gods. Let's destroy the temple of Dagon and let's join in in the worship and the relenting grace of this God whose wrath has been upon us. That's not what they did. They rejected God. They finally got rid of the God among them. Our problem was solved. So they thought. And now there's a transition to the story. From God's dealings with the Philistines and the ark among them, to now we find that the ark is now established among Israel. As I said, when they saw the ark, they rejoiced. God's presence is among us. They immediately got religious, performed every rite, every ritual. They were the Levitical order. They knew what to do. But listen, they did it without reverence. Remember what the ark was to them when it got captured. They brought the ark out of Silo, and they, and they brought it out like some rabbit's foot, some lucky charm. No, no, no reverence whatsoever. And here they go again. The ark has returned, and they have done the very same thing. They took the ark and just placed it on top of a rock. They prepared this sacrifice. They made worship easy and convenient. Why? Because the Levitical order, Leviticus tells us that in order to do this sacrifice, it is not done with cows. It is done with bulls. Who wants to go now and find two bulls to bring them back, to, to sacrifice them properly? Oh, we got these cows here, they're beautiful. Let's just use them. They took advantage of the convenience over the reverence. They simply set the ark on top of a rock for 
all to see. And apparently, it was there for a time. Apparently, it became a spectacle. Apparently, like the circus had arrived because people started coming from everywhere. And how the text says there that a 70, him being verse 19, because some had looked at the ark, looked upon the ark, he struck 70 men. Now you might look at your footnote on the bottom. Mine says in the ESV, 70 men, 50,000 men. In Spanish, what I read this morning, the translation says 50,000 men. In other words, in the Hebrew, the number is meant to be much larger than just 70 men. So it took some time for this amount of people to arrive. And there's the ark exposed for all to see. And in this irreverent manner, yet very religious, with this cheap worship that was provided, acting like the Philistines who worshiped and performed rites and rituals according to their own wisdom and work, left the Israelites with a similar question than the Philistines when they lost that many people. They asked the question, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? The Philistines asked, how can we escape God's wrath? The Israelites are asking, how can we stand before the Lord? What started as momentary joy brought upon them great calamity because of lack of reverence and left them with a sense of hopelessness. I ask us what they ask themselves. How do we approach the Lord? How do we stand before him? How do we escape his wrath and receive his salvation? Because it definitely does not happen through our terms, through our wisdom, through our ways, through our works. We come to God on his terms and by his grace, and we can sift down those two realities, his sovereignty, his terms, what he has decreed, and by his kindness, his grace, the way that you receive that is exclusively by faith. It is true in the New Testament as it was true in the Old and here we see the glimpse of perhaps God's people repenting and believing by faith that the God who called them out of Egypt is a good God who is among them. Because although they suffered greatly, here's what they did not do. They were as rebellious as the Philistines, but they did not think, let's get the ark out from among the nation. They said, no, the glory has returned. Let's send it to Kiriath Jerim. And they took it to the house of Abinadad and there Eliezer was consecrated. In other words, Eli had died. We have a new high priest who could now intercede for God's people 
knowing that God's holy glory and presence is again among them. They didn't see it like the Philistines. I think we'll see that there's a degree of repentance and correction of their ways because only by faith they trusted in God. But what does faith look like? What, what type of faith realizes that it is a relationship with God on his terms and only by his grace? What is it that faith, what is it that faith sees that can receive from God this forgiveness? It's a faith that says, my every religious attempt is worthless. That everything I do by my works and through my wisdom is sowing seeds of destruction for myself and damnation. It is a faith that fully depends on the God who has promised and covenanted to save his people. He alone is who saves so that we would then just repent of our sin, believe in him, and he do the rest. What is it that Israel had forgotten and what the Philistines just didn't know? They needed to remember what the Ark of the Covenant was. They needed to remember what the Ark of the Covenant symbolized, what is wrapped up in the Ark itself. Well, we know that the Ark of the Covenant, inside were the tablets that Moses received from the Lord, the Ten Commandments. And on the outside of the box, on the lid, were these golden wings of cherubims. Whenever we see in the scriptures cherubims, angelic beings, they're in the presence of God. In Ezekiel, Revelations, they sing holy, holy, holy around the throne room. So these winged beings, these angelic beings, are over the lid of the box, looking down into the box, and what do they see? They see the Ten Commandments, the law of God, but they understand the separation between God and man. Man has sinned, broken God's law, and here are, is the presence of God. And this is why the ark, right there between those two wings, that was the mercy seat. That was where the presence of God lied, and that was where the high priest was required to sprinkle the lamb the blood of lambs and goats and bulls. Why? Because there needed to be a payment, there needed to be a shedding of blood in order for God to relent from pouring his wrath upon those who have broken his law. They should have seen this and remembered this. But man in his wickedness and in his lostness, he did not mistreated this moment, dishonored God, and all they needed to do was to trust in God's holy, perfect provision of the shedding of blood to forgive us, not to relent us from relief in this world, but to relent from pouring his wrath upon us. And nothing has changed. Man has always been religious, and man has always needed a God of mercy and grace who would 
resolve, fix, accomplish what we ourselves could never accomplish. And today we need to know on this side of the cross, on this side in the New Testament, we do know what the Ark of the Covenant was pointing to. The intention of God with the mercy seat and the blood there that's poured and sprinkled on the mercy seat is that in the New Testament we find this very image, not in a box, not in a tabernacle, not in a tent or a temple. It is the perfect sacrifice, the perfect lamb who is nailed to a tree, who sheds his blood so that we who would believe by faith would be spared from the coming wrath of God against sin. This is why how the mercy seat is known as the place of propitiation where God relented, so is Jesus, the lamb who shed his blood, who would become then our propitiation, who would cover us with his righteousness, that although we might have been lawbreakers, found in him who obeyed the law to the T, we might be forgiven, accepted, we're called sons and daughters of the Most High, because the, the sacrifice of that lamb entered the throne room of grace. Jesus appears before the Father and says, I have brought the sacrifice of my own body, my own flesh, and God said it was sufficient to appease my wrath against a particular people who would just believe in me by faith and not through religious activity and not through works and human wisdom. Now there's no more blood of lambs and goats poured on a mercy seat. Now it is just the blood of the Son of God who was poured one day at Calvary. This is why Romans 3.25, Paul would say, whom God put forward as a propitiation, talking about Jesus, by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance. He had passed over former sins. Not that he ignored them, but he covered them only through Jesus Christ. So listen, I go back to where we started. Every man is religious. Man has always been religious. And every single one of us have an inclination towards seeking that which is greater than us, whom we need to appease and have peace with. The, the message of the gospel is this, that there's only one true God, and he is the one who is holy, who will punish sin, who by his very nature must avenge and pour his wrath against sin. And the only hope for our salvation is not the work that we accomplish, but the very work that God accomplishes. The God was, who is slow to anger and merciful sent his son to live the perfect life, to be a human being, to be a representative, to then be the sacrifice who would take and drink the bitter cup of wrath and freeing us by faith from that coming day where every person will have to face Almighty God. One day, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. 
Until that day, we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we warn others, and we warn people, and we admonish people, quit your religious pursuits of other gods that are powerless, that will fail you, and repent of all those pursuits and deal with the one true living God who by his grace has given us a way to have peace with him through Jesus.